Yeah. I also remember like probably the key moment for me was sitting in one of my viticulture classes and the topic was how to control gophers and the basic, like all the slides were, you take your gun and you shoot them. <laughs> so I just thought like, really want to do that. I mean, I'm sure gophers are a problem, but I would rather not shoot them. And this is why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> Hey there, I'm Nikki Lamberti, a multi-passionate entrepreneur who loves to share tips to boost your enjoyment on all the joy-filled things in life, especially food, wine, and travel. Not that long ago, I was traveling the world in my corporate sales job, and I discovered a love of fantastic food, beautiful wine, and the people and the places that bring them to life. So after a huge life change and a move to wine country, California, I've been studying wine, teaching others about it, and finally making my own. I started the Sip with Nikki podcast to create a virtual space for us to connect and hang out, try exciting wines together, and make the art of pairing food and wine less intimidating and more, well, awesome. So if you're a wine nerd like me or just someone who loves to enjoy some of the finer things in life but doesn't take it all too seriously, you are in the right place, my friend. Sip with me each week as I share tips, recommendations, recipes, and stories along with some of my special guests who will drop some of their knowledge, humor, and wisdom as we all sip together. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to make wine? Like for your job? Like a career? Or maybe what it's like to follow your passion and turn it into your life's work? Well, today we're talking with Sally Johnson Bloom, and she did exactly that. And it landed her on Glamour Magazine's 10 Most Badass Women Winemakers. We're going to hear all about her journey full of ups and downs while she and I are sipping a beautiful wine together. So let's sip. I am over the moon about my guest for today's episode. Sally Johnson Blum is originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan. She attended the University of Michigan for her undergrad and then became fascinated with winemaking while studying abroad in France. And after completing her dual degree in French literature and biology, nerd, she obtained a master's degree in winemaking from UC Davis and began her career as a winemaker. She spent eight years at St. Francis Winery in Sonoma. She made three vintages of her own wine before joining Pride Mountain Vineyards, which is where we were together for almost a decade. She was there as the winemaker since 2007 until last year. And there she received a lot of accolades, including not one, but two 100-point scores from the critic Robert Parker and landed three wines on Wine Spectator's Top 100 Wines of the World. And then moving on from Pride to Robert Mondavi Winery as its director of winemaking in 2022, Sally led a team of talented winemakers in producing wines from the famed Tokolan Vineyard And most recently, in 2023, she joined the team at Tambor Bay as its winemaker. She can often be found hiking through the vineyards with her adorable Boston Terriers, Biscuit and Daisy. I love them. And you can find her climbing on barrels or shoveling out tanks in the cellar. She does it all. Please welcome Sally Johnson Blum. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is just like old times again, and I've been looking forward to it all week. 
Oh, well, you are such a good sport for joining us. And yeah, like old times. So for listeners who are not aware, uh, when Sally and I were working at Pride Mountain Vineyards, when we shut down during COVID and we were told to shelter in place, S-I-P, we started Sip with Nikki, which was a Facebook Live. So we did a lot of uh, a lot of screen time together, talking about wines and entertaining people through shutdown. And now this is the second iteration of Sip with Nikki as we launch this podcast. So again, thank you so much for being here. So everybody heard your awesome bio and your accolades, but I'd love to hear from you. Sort of catch me up on what the last year, especially, has been since you and I were working together. Well, it has been kind of a roller coaster. You know, I was at Pride for so long and I was so committed to making the wines at Pride. We had an amazing team. I had great relationships with Steve and the Pride families and loved my cellar team. And after 15 years, I had kind of gotten to the point where I felt like it was almost not challenging enough, you know? Like the things I loved to do had gotten easy and the things that were hard were things like filing government reports, sort of like not the passionate hands-on winemaking things. So I wasn't determined to leave Pride or anything like that, but I was recruited by the Constellation Brands team to come and join Robert Mondavi Winery with this pretty awesome opportunity to do a $200 million renovation of the winery, including concrete and stainless and everything state-of-the-art And I knew the winemakers. I actually had interviewed one of them for an intern role at Pride. So I was very excited to work with Lauren Oliver, as well as Curtis Ogasawara as their director. And I had also worked previously with Blake Wood, who was and currently is the director of vineyard operations there for Consolation and for their entire Tokelon Vineyard. He came from Beckstoffer. He's probably one of the top farmers that I've ever worked with in the Napa Valley. And so I really thought it was an amazing opportunity and it really was. But as I started to do that job, I realized I was so many steps away from hands-on actual winemaking. I didn't even, you know, get my own wine samples out of the tanks. I had a whole team of people between me and the pump who were all executing on the vision that we developed and shared. And I just really missed, you know, those things that you mentioned in my bio, shoveling out tanks, didn't get to do that last year. Other than when I was pregnant with my kids, I have shoveled out tanks every single year. So that was a bummer. And just really missed, you know, having the autonomy to set the goal, set the vision and do what I believe is best without you know, all the layers that are inevitable at a big company like that. So that makes makes total sense. And before we continue this awesome journey for the listeners who don't know what shovel out tanks, what in the world (laughs) are we talking about? Do share. Yeah. So when you're making a very high end red wine, well, all red wine is fermented on the skins. So the whole berry goes into a stainless steel tank or concrete or wood, whatever vessel you're using. And it is fermented with the juice and the skins and the seeds and all the flavor is extracted from the skins and the seeds into the wine to make this just absolutely delicious, dark, blue-black wine. But you can't really run that through a pump when you want to empty your tank out. Pumps, even the gentlest pumps will 
apply too much pressure to the grapes. And so you can have some degradation of the seeds, of the skins that leads to bitter compounds. And so what we do is we actually get inside the tanks and using inert, you know, shovel, we remove the pumice out the door of the tank, just as if we were shoveling snow. So I feel like I'm pretty uniquely qualified for this job. Yes, Miss Michigan. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you can relate to that too. I can. Jersey certainly can. Yeah. All right, cool. So that now we've got a picture of you with a plastic shovel, mm-hmm. shoveling out a tank. All right. So you were feeling kind of far away from that and missing being hands-on. So tell us what happened next. Well, what happened next is I think that we both realized pretty quickly that it wasn't going to be a great fit. You know, I came in with all this energy and I was very fired up to get super hands on and get down and work in the cellar and be out in the vineyards and all of the things that I had um, been able to do at Pride. And I wasn't really that well adapted to the corporate lifestyle, the meetings and the planning and the layers of reporting. And so there was definitely a transition period um, where I think there was a lot of positive energy and I was definitely super optimistic. But in the end, I think it was probably for the best for both of us to take our separate paths and go our our own separate ways. You know, it's funny that many people at least dream of if not actually do the reverse of that, of what you experienced. They're in the corporate world and they're like, I want to leave the corporate world to get my hands dirty and make wine. And you went from your hands being very dirty making wine to being inadvertently slotted into the corporate world. It's like, wait a minute, that's the reverse of what the uh, living the dream is supposed to be, right? Yeah, I totally see that. Um, And, you know, the corporate world was fun. I was having, it was exciting. The stakes were very high. Tokelon Vineyard, obviously, is any winemaker's dream location to farm grapes. And the team was great. I really enjoyed connecting with a big group of winemakers, a lot of passionate technical people who wanted to geek out about amazing wine. The vineyard team was awesome. And working with Genevieve was incredible. She was really an amazing person to connect with. But yeah, at the end of the day, I gave it my all. I tried really hard and I'm doing something different now. I've always said that I think in life, it's just as important to be able to cross off the list, the things that you have tried and said, nope, I know that's not the fit for me as it is to find the things that are. Because I think the way that you get to the things that are are through the things that aren't. (laughs) Speaking from experience, right? Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I think in my um, Napa Valley Vintners Leadership Program, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about the definition of success. And someone put out that the definition of success is failing over and over again and continuing to try. I had a really strong vision of what we were going to do with the Robert Madavi brand. And I think that even though people were definitely communicating to me that they were on board with that, maybe we were not quite as um, in sync as I thought we were. So I was asked to leave um, and I was okay with that and also had been um, in touch with some other friends who had projects that were available. So I quickly pivoted to joining the team at Mullen Road Cellars, which is a cake bread brand. It's owned by Dennis Cake Bread and it's up in Washington State, which is really fun for me. It's very different. Environment, 
own rooted vines, no rootstock, totally different growing season, super compressed, really long, sunny days, um, high acids, very different style of wines. And then I also got the opportunity to join a really good friend, Barry Waite, here at Tambor Bay Vineyards, where I'm sitting right now as his winemaker for his Oakville and Yountville wines. So really, you got your hand in two different amazing projects at the same time. Yeah, it kind of all fell into my lap right at the time that I uh, was looking for something to fill my days with. And it's been great. That's amazing. You know, and it's like my dad growing up always said, he, he the dad-isms, not even dad jokes, but like the, this too shall pass. Everything happens for a reason, right? And when you're like a teenager, you're like, rolling your eyes. And now in my 40s, I look back at all of the highs and lows and journey and things that were planned and things that weren't planned and how everything really inevitably does lead to the next thing. We just can't always see it when we're in it. So that's so cool that, you know, you you went through the path the way that you did. And then here's this other amazing opportunities that really come from you just being connected and knowing people and people know you as a great person and they want to work with you and they know your talent. So rightfully so, that you've landed where you are. And that's so exciting. So thank you for catching us up to uh, where is Sally in 2023? <laughs> uh, I think, and I know this from, you know, spending time with you in person working at the same winery when our guests would say, oh, that's the winemaker. Can I ask her a question? And every time, right, it was like the same questions that people want to know and they have access to, especially a woman winemaker. They want to know, how did you get into wine? in the first place. So I mentioned in your bio that you studied in France, but tell us a little bit more about, was there an aha moment that made you say, I really want to pursue this, or maybe even an aha wine that you tasted? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I would have two aha stories. So the first one is kind of like a, oh no. And then the second one, that unicorn wine that I know yours and you probably know mine too, but it's it's always fun to remember. So my first like, oh no moment was when I was actually interning at a pharmaceutical company where my mom worked. I was a college student and I had gotten this opportunity and my entire family is in science. There's like a nuclear physicist and a professor. And I definitely was encouraged to study science in college because that was sort of the comfort zone for every single person I knew. And I was studying biology and I got this internship at a pharmaceutical company. And I was in this fluorescent lit, sterile room, pipetting cells with- Oh my gosh, I can hear the buzz of the fluorescent light. I know. That sound from chemistry lab. I know it. (laughs) And it was summer. So of course, like I knew it was beautiful outside, but I was inside and I just, I said to myself, I don't think I can do this for the rest of my life. Then the next summer, I ended up doing that study abroad program in France um, and was sent over with the directive to really go and taste some cool French wines. My aunt and uncle were very into wine and they encouraged me to try wine while I was in France. And I coincidentally also met some people involved in the import-export business. Then my mom and my aunt came over to travel with me and we went to Champagne, we went to Cognac, we went to Bordeaux, we went to Burgundy. And I thought, wow, I can use my science background. I speak French so I can pronounce the names of these grapes. And maybe I want to go into farming and viticulture. So I applied to grad school, got in, 
And then I noticed that the winemaking students in the enology department seemed to be having a little bit more fun <laughs> than the viticulture <laughs> students in my department. Um, mainly, they had access to this amazing collection of wines dating back to like the 1920s. We had access to these incredible wines that none of us would have ever been able to taste if we hadn't been students at the department because all this wine was donated to UC Davis over the years by some benefactors. So I switched to winemaking, which at the time I was studying was separate from viticulture. Um, but I'm really glad that I started out in farming because I've been able to use those skills throughout my career and really work as much, you know, out in the vineyards as in the winery. And that's a that's a great distinction, again, for people who are kind of new to just hearing about this career and this field and the different subsets within it. You know, when we say viticulture, you know, farming, right? Viticulture, the study of the vines, the vineyard, the soils versus enology is another term that you'll hear, which we kind of call winemaking, right? But enology from that Latin eno root word, like enophile, wine lover. Yeah. So yeah, when you are like Sally and you go for a master's somewhere at UC, Davis or when I completed my certificate in winemaking at the same institution, you can focus on viticulture, vineyard, you can fit, focus on enology, winemaking. Sometimes it's a blend of the two, but you know, it's like the, what do you call the Venn diagram? They've got oh, yeah. separate, but they have that overlapping center point. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you you were passionate about the vineyard part, but you saw that the winemaking team was getting to taste this beautiful collection of wines at UC Davis, which I don't blame you for making that shift. <laughs> yeah, I also remember like probably the key moment for me was sitting in one of my viticulture classes and the topic was how to control gophers and the basic, like all the slides were, you take your gun and you shoot them. <laughs> so I just thought like, I don't really want to do that. I mean, I'm sure gophers are a problem, but I would rather not shoot them. And this is why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, okay. So take me to like what in the early days, was there a wine? Sounds like maybe a French wine that just gave you fireworks and just this amazing uh, reaction that really made you dig deeper? Yeah, for sure. My uncle gave me some bottles of 1982 and 1989 Bordeaux, which those were epic vintages. He happened to and buy- And those are our birth years, Sally, right? You and me? Yeah, wink, wink, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Definitely a child of the 80s. Okay. <laughs> um, I- was good friends. I have to give a little shout out here to the family that owns and operates Sky Vineyards. My dear friend, Maya Olds, her dad, Lori, who's amazing, her sister, Skyla, and um, Matt, who at the time was Skyla's partner. They used to have these really amazing hangout sessions up on Mount Veter under the stars, no hot water, no comforts. They had like a little cooler. They didn't have a refrigerator. So it was very like 1960s, you know, Berkeley, Napa, just like super authentic and real. And I wanted to share some of these great wines with them. So I brought a bottle selected at random up to one of these hangout dinners. And it was 1989 Chateau Clinet. 
which of course, as soon as I pulled it out, Matt, who was very well-versed in all things wine, he said, oh my God, that was the breakout vintage for this winery. And it received a hundred points from Robert Parker. This is amazing. I can't believe it. Oh, oh, a foreshadowing there. Yeah. And your own one. (laughs) Well, Parker, I won't be so brazen as to say that I thought I would ever get a 100 point score, but that was a magical moment. And tasting that wine with those people who to them, you know, it was like an experience, almost like a work of art. And the conversation that we had as we tasted the wine, the wine evolved and how amazing it was. It was just a magical moment. And I've been so lucky to taste that wine several times over the year. I actually had it with the Pride family when they came over to my house for my open house. We bought a new house in 2015. And yeah, that's, I've just, I have this connection to that wine that it feels really special, something I'll never forget. It's so cool when we can have connections with wine, you know, and not just have a wine where one time in your life, you're like, wow. But then when you get to try it again at different stages in your life, when you've gone through different things and it lands differently, but it's always special, right? And you keep using one of my favorite, like top 10 terms, magical moments, you know, my (laughs) Disney background. And I do refer to wine and food and food and wine together as magical moments. So to that point, and this can be with that wine or, or any other wine. When I say, what is your favorite food and wine pairing? What are you thinking about? Uh, I'm probably thinking about Pride Viognier and Uni from <laughs> Osaki, which we enjoyed on our our last episode of Sip with Nikki. I the think it was. You know? Yes. That's pretty epic. I still dream about that Uni, so... I would highly recommend that. But as far as like red wines, I love to really focus on the wine. So quite often I will just enjoy it with a little cheese because I really want to like really enjoy the wine. I think you nailed it with Pride Viognier and Uni. So for those of you who are not adventurous, especially in your sushi explorations, I I encourage you to check this out. Uni is sea urchin and it just tastes like a velvet textured ocean in your mouth. Mm-hmm. It's like ocean butter. <laughs> I think that's how you described it on our episode. You said something like, this is sea butter. And yeah, it's, wow. I recently went down to Santa Barbara because I'm sourcing some fruit down there now for some of my projects. And I was able to get some uni still alive and like cracked right up for me there. It was amazing. I had that with a little rosé and that was also a a very nice pairing. Gosh, the best. We could do a whole episode on just our favorite food and wine pairings, which is why I think this will be the first of many visits, hopefully from you, where we can dive deeper into that. Um, I want to segue for just a moment and uh, ask a question that comes up a lot about being a female in a very male-dominated industry. So I recently read an article from Travel and Leisure magazine just from a few months ago, and it said that as, as of current statistics, 14% of California wineries have a woman at the helm. So that could mean owner, winemaker, combination of the two. 14%. And there you are in that number, right? So what's that like? What's that journey been for you in such a a male-dominated field? That's a great question. There's been some 
definite highs. There's been some definite lows too. I feel like as a woman, and I can't speak for all women by any means, but for me in this industry, I definitely have always realized that by collaborating with my male counterparts, I will be much more effective than if I'm trying to, you know, advance myself at their expense. So I have always worked with a lot of strong men. And I think that I'm naturally, I'm very flexible. I'm very collaborative person, very kind of like optimistic and upbeat. And that has served me really well, just in terms of establishing trust and being able to prove to them that by delegating to me, they're not giving up any control or authority. That's definitely how I got started as a young winemaker. I would just say that women in this industry, which is so seasonal, you have to really put your life on hold still at many places for three months, you know, sometimes during harvest because you have to be there. That's hard to do when you have a family. And it's also an agricultural industry. There are still a lot of sort of old school attitudes towards women and what we might and might not be able to do just as in terms of like the actual production and physical labor. But I've always had a really strong tribe of women to support me. And I've seen them rise to the top in their own respective careers. And um, I just feel very grateful and very lucky to have this opportunity. And I feel like, I think that women have a unique perspective towards winemaking and also towards supporting each other as winemakers. I love that word collaboration that you talk about, you know, collaborating across genders, collaborating across wineries. You know, I had my college roommate and her husband from New Jersey in town yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, it was their first time really out here doing, you know, wine tasting. And as we're driving by all these places, they're like, oh my gosh, look at all these competitors. And I said, well, it's interesting because it's really not that. And when I moved here and started working here 11 years ago, that was a real aha for me that you have, you know, 400 some on wineries in Napa and 400 plus more in Sonoma. And and people who work and own these places don't look at it as competition. The collaboration is really amazing. And a lot of it is because like you at UC Davis, so many of your peers that you studied with are now sort of your counterpart at other properties. And and I think too, in recent years, especially what we've gone through in this area since 2017 and just all these wildfires and this like drama and stress, I think the community has got even more tight-knit where everyone's really helping each other out and, and, and holding each other up. And, you know, I always say, what wine drinker that you know, think of listener, think of yourself right now, what wine drinker that you know says they only drink one brand of wine? There's plenty to go around, right? There's plenty of market share. And that's what's so cool is the collaboration where people really work together because it's that, there's another dadism and I'm probably going to butcher it. What is that? Like a rising tide lifts Lift all, all ships, yes. right? So like- I it's, say that all the time. You're <laughs> all doing great. And, and yeah. that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about this industry because like you, I'm a very collaborative individual. Speaking about women and wine, it's a great segue to uh, my next question, um, which is actually uh, a listener question. So, listener questions. 
we're going to give one of our listeners a shout out. Um, this is from Aviv and Aviv wants to know, he, he would love for you to speak about the myth of quote, feminine versus masculine wines. And why do people have to put such labels on wine. So I know with me as a wine educator working in a tasting room, I'm guilty of having described wines with those titles and, you know, putting gender on them. And especially now, as we know, we're all trying to be more sensitive and inclusive with all things, including gender. It's like, yeah, what? Are, why do we do that? And should we do that? And, and so can you speak to just using that terminology to describe wines? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, hi, Aziz. He's a good friend. <laughs> Thank you for listening in. I remember when I started at Pride, we had two Cabernets and they were very different in style. Our reserve Cabernet, this big, intense, structured, you know, you almost don't even want to taste it until it's five years old. And then our Vintner Select Cabernet, which was opulent and lush and just like unctuous as a just a gorgeous wine. And so they were so different. And we did fall back on that terminology to describe them. We would say the reserve cab is masculine and the Vintner Select cab is feminine. And then I had a baby and I went through labor and my husband oh. like, I got to go. <laughs> and then I realized, swap those terms. You know, the woman <laughs> is the one that's strong and intense and don't cross her unless she's the right place and it's the right moment in time. And the the masculine wine might be the one that just it's always tastes good and it's happy and it's ready to go. I don't know. So that was a real turning point for me, just in terms of how I conceptualized wines and the language that I use to talk about them. I do think that wine is really unique in that it requires translation from this sensory experience into words that can communicate to someone who hasn't yet pulled the cork on that bottle what they might expect. So we have some shorthands, you know, we have red fruit, we have black fruit, we have things like texture and acid. And I think that masculine and feminine sort of fall into that too. But I definitely think that really those are kind of like shortcuts to really explaining the texture, the flavor, and the dynamic interplay of the wine in your mouth. So I try to avoid those as much as I can. I think it's um, kind of selling the wine short. It's a lot more complex than just a binary, you know, masculine or feminine. Wine is non-binary. <laughs> it, it, it. It, it is. I love it. To your point, I love the word shortcut. It's almost like for someone like me that part of the time is working as a wine educator and describing wines and teaching people about wines. It's like, you know, be a little more creative than just falling back on those traditional, very sort of narrow-minded masculine feminine. So I definitely yeah. have have moved away from that. So yeah, thanks for weighing in on that. And thanks Aviv for that great question. Yeah. So now we're going to be moving into our wine spotlight of the day. And on each episode, I have sent to my guest ahead of time the same wine that I have in front of me. And uh, sometimes I'm going to pick the wine and sometimes I'm going to let the guest pick the wine. And today with Sally, it's so funny because we literally landed on this wine kind of together. We didn't want to pick something that she's made. That's too easy. But I thought it would be cool to kind of stick to one of our underlying themes of our conversation today about women winemakers. So today we're going to be tasting Crocker and Star 2019 
Cab Franc Blend. And Crocker and Star is located here in the Napa Valley in St. Helena, the AVA or American Viticulture area that it's located in, St. Helena. And um, when I was texting back and forth with you, Sally, and saying, oh, this is, what do you think? I'm thinking about, let's do a California wine and something that we love. And I said, how about this? And you said, I love that wine. So tell me a little bit about your exposure with this wine. And then we're going to taste it together and see if we can come up with some uh, descriptors more than just masculine or feminine. (laughs) I love it. Well, yeah, Pam Star is a little bit of an idol of mine, like as far as a winemaker girl crush type of thing. She is just phenomenal. She was really visionary, I think, in how she created this brand. She's told me this story a couple of times and it actually has really inspired my current chapter in my own career. She knew she wanted to be a vintner. She wanted to have her own brand. She wanted to have complete creative control, but she didn't have the money to buy, you know, this very expensive land in Napa Valley. So she had worked with her now partner and set up a meeting with him in San Francisco, went down there. He thought she was going to ask for a contract to buy the grapes. And she actually instead asked for a partnership to produce wine together. And so she sort of convinced him that this was going to be a good, good thing for both of them. And they launched this brand together many years ago, and it's just been really successful. She now has her own vineyards. She was able to buy those vineyards. She has an all-female winemaking team, including, you know, cellar worker up to her current winemaker. And I just think the wines are gorgeous. I love Cabernet Franc, as you do too. We both, I think that's a big part of why we were so happy together, working together at Pride. And I think she does a great job. She's got a delicate hand, but she goes for this like really ripe, extracted, delicious style. So it's never overblown, but it's fully, fully aromatic. It's not green at all. It's very perfumey and floral and just absolutely delicious. I mean, even from the label of this wine, it is the most beautiful purple that Mm -hmm. I've ever seen with a beautiful bouquet of flowers on it. So just visually stunning in the in the packaging, which we know is important. And then once we get it in the glass, you know, in mine, I poured this before we started recording. So it's been opening up with some oxygen in my glass for about an hour now. And when I lift it up, it's like, well, it is a magical moment, but I'm going to try to use more vocabulary than that. It's a combination of rich, ripe fruits, like you said, but I just got a little almost minty or herbal note and a little bit of spice. And for those of you who are not familiar with Cabernet Franc, that's the name of a grape and it's related to Cabernet Sauvignon, right? So they're similar, but different. Um, and Cabernet Franc is often known for having a little more floral, um, kind of, again, for lack of a better term, prettier, I'm using air quotes here, prettier notes on it, but don't get me wrong. She can be a strong female. She could be a woman that just gave labor this Cabernet Franc, right? (laughs) Right. Taste it. It's bold and it's rich and it's like liquid velvet in my mouth. And then the finish on this wine, once I have swallowed it. It is just hanging on and lingering for days. I freaking love it. What do you think? Agreed on all counts. Um, I think it's done with such finesse. What I love about Pam's wines, and I've always striven to create in my own wines too, is 
this elegance and saturation in the mid palate. So we know we can get ripe fruit. We know we can get big tannins. We know we can get nice acidity. But what we really need is the stuffing. It's almost like the glue that holds the whole wine together. And I love the texture that she's able to create in the mid palate. It's very mouth coating. It's supple. Like you said, there are layers of flavor. It lingers. It really continues to evolve in the glass. It's just beautiful. Great words, supple, saturation, mid palate, right? It's just, it's really beautiful. And it's a great price point. This wine retails online for about $68, which for a Napa Valley Cabernet Franc is an awesome price. So that's one of the things I love about it too. So not only is this wine coming from a producer, Crocker and Star, who is uh, female-owned or co-owned, it's also coming from a female winemaker. So, And I'm tasting it with a badass female winemaker in the recording today. So my head might explode a little bit. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you got to add yourself to that list, Nikki. You've got your own brand. You've got your winemaking degree and you've you've got your own unicorn wine story that I hope you're going to tell at one of your Sip with Nikki episodes. I will. I will. And and I've only gotten to this point because I've been inspired by so many different people, including you, including Julie Johnson of Trace Boys, who is also one of my mentors. And, you know, along my journey, it really has been about those those moments when I've met people and been inspired, right? So one of my last questions that I have for you is, you know, at this point where you are and so so many amazing accomplishments and accolades and growth that's happened in 20 plus years of doing this, what inspires you today? What inspires me today is the liberation that I feel of being able to pursue things that I truly believe in. So I feel like I have a 25-year history in this industry. And I have paid a lot of dues. There's, as I mentioned, been plenty of ups and downs. Now I'm able to really put together this portfolio of, you know, great people, vineyards that I love, um, making wines that I think will be really stunning and special and unique. So in addition to my two projects, Mullen Road Cellars and Tambor Bay, I have a couple of smaller projects. I'm working with some vineyard owners in Oakville and St. Helena. And also I'm back on Spring Mountain making schoolhouse vineyards, which you may not know. Yay! (laughs) That's good. All is right with the world. Yeah, it is. So just to be able to really be a part of authentic wines and look toward the future of Napa Valley. You know, I think we're really at a crossroads. This is something that I talk about with a group that I'm involved with, the Napa Vintners Leadership Cohort 3. I've been selected into that program. And there's some really awesome winemakers, vintners, owners in that group. We recently spoke to Cyril Chapelet and he shared with us that he has set for a model, the Antonori family with over 600 years of family ownership, your unicorn wine. I know. Ah, unicorn Antonori. Another story (laughs) for another day. Yeah. For another day. So I think that Napa Valley right now, we're in this real transition period. We were basically established in the sixties, seventies, That's when this area came to prominence as a great winemaking region based on the work done by Robert Mondavi and others. And now we're sort of in the third generation, fourth generation of family ownership where there there are so many people involved that it becomes hard 
to transition to the next generation. And it's also just worth so much more money now, you know? So I'm really passionate and driven to make sure that Napa Valley does stay this special place where vendors connect with each other, support each other, collaborate together, where people believe in the wines and it's about more than, you know, just selling a product at the end of the day. That's really what inspires me right now. I love it. And if people want to be inspired by you beyond this episode, where can they find you? Where should they follow you? Go ahead. Uh, I, I am active on Instagram. It's kind of fun for me. I You guys I check think. her out on Instagram. <laughs> Just the vineyard porn alone. Oh, yeah. There's some vineyard amazing. porn. Yeah. And I, I'm about to launch my website. I'm still working on that. I'm going to have a newsletter with updates on what I'm doing, the vineyards that I'm working with, and my thoughts on the vintage And then I'm also working with um, some private clients to make small volumes of extremely fancy, delicious wine. So if anyone wants to start a little brand, they can reach out to me. Oh my gosh. And what's your handle on Instagram? How do they DM you? (laughs) At winemaker underscore Sally. Winemaker underscore Sally. Slide into her DMs. (laughs) Oh, that's so great. Well, please follow Sally. Follow me. I'm Nikki Lamberti on Instagram. If you want to get your hands on this gorgeous wine that we tasted today and enjoy it for yourself, there's a link in the show notes for you to be able to purchase and have this wine shipped right to your door. Sally, this was so fun to connect. As always, I'm inspired by you all the time, every day. So thank you for not only being one of my first guests on the podcast, but thank you for being a friend. That just popped into my head. I did not plan it. (laughs) Have a great rest of your day, okay? Thanks, you too. Love you. Love you too. Sip well. (laughs) Bye. Wow. I am still so inspired by Sally, even 11 years later after meeting her, working with her, and then becoming friends with her. And I hope that you enjoyed a little perspective about being a woman in the wine world and uh, just everything that it takes to create these beautiful wines. And you know, Sally is on the move, like can't even keep up with her since recording this and before releasing, she's added a couple of additional projects as well. Um, Mullen Road, Cellars and the Walls, which are both in Walla Walla, Washington, another awesome wine country. So she's jet setting uh, back and forth between here and there. And uh, if you check out her Instagram, you will see her recent announcement about her own label. Finally, she's doing it. And I'm so thrilled for her and I can't wait to taste it. So Sally, thank you. I know you're busy and this was such a treat. And uh, listeners, if you want to grab that beautiful Crocker and Star Cab Franc that we sipped together, click the link in the show notes and you can have it shipped right to you. Um, If you enjoyed this, please share with someone. You can like, you can subscribe, and uh, leave us a review so we can keep doing what we're doing. Sip well. Sip with Nikki is hosted by Nikki Lamberti. Production and sound mixing by Catherine Bryan. You can always send your listener questions to Nikki at sipwithnikki.com or find us on the Sip With Nikki Facebook page or visit us on Instagram at Nikki Lamberti. 
Thanks for listening. We can't wait to sip with you. This is Sip With Nikki, a production of Take 10 Studios.